0: The COVID 19 pandemic brought unprecedented challenges to the world's healthcare system as sick patients with an unfamiliar disease filled doctors' offices, emergency rooms, inpatient units, and intensive care beds. With a highly infectious virus, healthcare providers had to find new ways to take care of patients while keeping their own staff safe without crowding their waiting rooms. So, how do rural healthcare systems rise to the challenge and ensure patients have access to the care they need?
1: With innovative thinking, quick implementation, and the will to pioneer new care models.
0: I'm Rachel Lott.
1: And I'm J.J. Hotchire.
0: And this is Rural Health Rising.
1: Welcome to Episode 40 of Rural Health Rising. I'm J.J. Hotchire, President and Chief Executive Officer of Hillsdale Hospital.
0: And I'm Rachel Lott, Director of Marketing and Development.
1: So, Rachel, last week uh, you and I had a candid conversation Uh, about how COVID-19 is impacting rural hospitals and rural communities, uh, ours in particular. Mm -hmm. Uh, We talked about the rise of COVID, uh, the significant amount of deaths that we have witnessed. uh, Very alarming and very concerning. But today, uh, we are talking about one hospital's creative solution uh, to manage the health of their growing number of COVID-19 patients early on in the pandemic. And they've been using this as a solution ever since. And I'm excited uh, that our listeners get to hear about what's happening here.
0: Yes, and for the first time ever on Rural Health Rising, a Rural Health Rising first, we have not just one, but two Two. healthcare leaders that we are going to be talking with, and these two stepped up really in a big way to care for their community in the midst of COVID-19.
1: They sure did, and our guests today are Kathy Bailey. She's a president and CEO, and Dr. Anthony Frank, CMO and Senior Vice President of Medical Affairs, both for UNC Health Blue Ridge. Welcome to Rural Health Rising, Kathy and Dr. Frank. Thank you. Very pleased to be with you today.
2: Thank you. Great to be here.
1: Why don't you both tell us a little bit
0: about yourselves, your background, and your work at UNC Health Blue Ridge. And Kathy, we'll start with you.
3: Thank you, Rachel. I started my career as a nurse at the bedside. I progressed through different nurse leader roles until my first CEO role in 1999, there, I was the inaugural CEO at the Outer Banks Hospital and had the once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to build a hospital where they had never had one before. Wow. So we went from the ground up. I ran it. Uh, was there for about six years and then moved to uh, UNC Health Blue Ridge. I've been here 16 years, nine of those as the CEO. So I oversee, we have one hospital with two campuses. We have about 45 physician practices spread over a three-county region, a continuing care retirement community, a wellness center, and we own two nursing homes, and we uh, lease the operations of those out. Most recently, we've gone through a major transition from a management services agreement with our previous partner to now a management services agreement with UNC Health. That is very recent. We're just uh, four days into it. Wow.
1: Wow.
0: And Dr. Frank, what about you?
2: Uh, so Rachel, I'm an emergency physician by training. Uh, I've been practicing about 24 years uh, in the emergency department since I completed my residency training. Uh, during that course, uh, have really just kind of embraced increasing leadership roles from uh, being a uh, medical director of a single emergency department to uh, uh, my last organization overseeing uh, eight emergency departments, um, as, as well as the large academic medical center um, as the vice chair of operations. Uh, so really have a, a spectrum of, uh, of care that I've done uh, practicing in large 100,000 plus emergency departments to small critical access uh, EDs in uh, various organizations. Uh, in that system, uh, I've been the chief medical officer here with Blue Ridge uh, since July of 2019. Uh, so about two and a half years, and uh, my first CMO role, which I uh, got to encounter a pandemic. So it's been uh, learning on the, learning on the fly or drinking from a fire hose, whatever.
0: Great time yeah, for a exactly, promotion, right? Exactly <laughs> what you want to do.
2: Uh, but uh, it has has been an incredible time yeah. in healthcare over the last two years.
1: Well, Rachel, as you're going to hear today, they're movers and shakers, Mm -hmm. and I'm excited for them to tell their story. But uh, now that we've established uh, who you both are and what you do, uh, let's start with a why. And we do this on every episode so we can get to know our guests just a little bit better. Uh, And once again, Kathy, we'll start with you. What is your why? What motivates you? What gets you up out of bed in the morning?
3: J.J., because of my nursing background, I have always had a focus on taking care of the patient. Um, We have uh, our unofficial motto here, where we say that we are friends and neighbors taking care of friends and neighbors. And that resonates with me. I think it resonates with our teammates and with our providers. Our goal is to be the provider of choice in our community. Um, We're here to serve the people that we live beside of, that we go to church with, and that we shop with. Uh, We, as a healthcare system, as you do in your hospital, see people at their best times and their worst times. But they all know, and that's what gets me out of bed every morning is knowing that we are here, no matter what happens and what they need, our doors are open.
1: Well, that's a fantastic answer. I think we can close in prayer right now. Yeah, Rachel, exactly. There we I go. In uh, <laughs> a great why, you know, for all of those reasons, and certainly with your background in nursing, it all comes together, especially with what we're dealing with now in the pandemic. So, thank you for that. And Dr. Frank, now it's your turn. Yeah, I'm what not sure I why? can
2: top Miss Bailey on that, but uh, mine's <laughs> mine's pretty much along the the, uh, the same lines. Really, the biggest why is uh, I think the opportunity and leadership to uh, to change healthcare for patients and families. Um, I think we've really done typically a terrible job um, in, in the way we provide care and making it convenient for patients. Uh, we typically have not met them where they are and uh, really addressing their needs and, and, and taking care of them on their terms. It's really been more about uh, you know, us having the close parking spots and um, you know, the hours that are convenient for our staff and our, uh, and our physicians, as opposed to uh, you know what are the patients and the families uh, need. And then just uh, kind of following that up is, uh, you know, just watching family members. I mean, again, I know how to navigate the healthcare system and just the frustration of even watching my own family members try to uh, access care just, you know, screams to me of of how much better we could we could do in that particular area.
1: Wow, that was awesome. Often mm-hmm. not spoken either. You know, we hate to admit right. some of those things, don't we? But I'm very proud that uh, you've identified those as some of the barriers. So right. excellent.
0: And as JJ has often said to me, which I believe our former CEO said to him, the camp is not for the counselors. And that's kind of what you were alluding to. It's for the campers, right? For the the campers. hospital is for the patients, not for the staff. So absolutely, um, that's a really important perspective. So to start, let's go back to the beginning in those early days. Um, for us, it was in March, uh, mid-March of 2020. But when did COVID-19 reach your community? And what was it like for for your organization and your staff at the time?
3: We're about the same. We started seeing it in March. Um, we had been planning for it. We stood up our incident command um, early on. We started looking at, did we have supplies? Where were we going to put the patients? How were we going to take care of them? Uh, so we were ready when the first patient rolled in, but then I think they kept rolling and as they came in, we started understanding this is bigger than anything we have ever seen before.
2: Yeah, I think just adding on to that, uh, Rachel. I mean, I, I think just the fear, even on um, you know on our side as the hospital. I mean, we're are used to you know kind of a one big event, a big car accident, or you know something like that. But uh, the you know the fear of are are we going to be able to handle the needs of the community? um and actually there were two parts of that one you know if they were really sick are we do we have enough beds do we have the equipment do we you know we have the ppe to take care of them and then on the uh on the second side of that what if they were just scared what if they all showed up to our emergency department uh because they were worried that they had covid how how were we going to keep our ed beds operational and and make sure that we could take care of the really sick folks if they showed up so that was that was one of the early things was just trying to think through what What do we need to do to make sure that we can we can provide for the community if they show up.
1: You know, so when you started to see the increase uh, in your COVID cases, um, what prompted your thought process or discussion to try to do something a little different, non-traditional, a model of care that you've implemented?
3: Well, I think it started with us realizing that the COVID patients were just continuing to come. And, you know, like every hospital, we have bed limitations. Um, Anthony, Dr. Frank, actually heard about a virtual concept. He brought it to us. We said, take it and run with it. And he got with one of our primary care physicians and they said, you know, we can do this. And very quickly set up the capability to take care of patients that could safely be taken care of at home, which kept them with their family. It kept our beds free for those that were more acutely ill and it launched our virtual hospital, which has been a roaring success.
1: So Dr. Frank, it started with you. So why don't you explain a little bit about, uh, you know, some of that rationale of why you would approach leadership and suggest such a thing?
2: Well, so as Ms. Bailey mentioned, um, you know, again, kind of heard uh, about this uh, uh, program uh, from our uh, previous uh, management uh, group and, I think as we had talked about earlier, uh, one of the things was our primary care doctors, as I uh, said, you know, have y'all heard about this and what do you want to do? They said, no, no, no. We want to make sure that we're taking care of our patients. We don't, we don't want anybody else to do this. Um, And so we were, you know, obviously faced with some challenges of, you know, what's going to happen with high volumes and high acuity levels and all the limited resources Mm -hmm. we have. Um, So are there, are there ways that we can innovate and, uh, you know, provide some disruption from what typical healthcare delivery had looked like. And, uh, one of those was to really kind of expand the virtual telemedicine for uh, COVID patients. Um, you know, as y'all were talking about some timelines, uh, this was an idea that kind of popped up on the 8th of April. So right after those March dates that we were talking about, uh, Mm -hmm. and we actually went live Mm -hmm. with it on the 22nd of April. So if you can imagine any time previous in healthcare that you could take a new idea and actually go, uh, hearing the idea to implementation in two weeks, just uh, pretty amazing. But as we, uh, as we talk about the virtual hospital, um, on paper, it looks like just, uh, just like a bricks and mortar hospital, although we're just doing it a little differently. And uh, we started with our uh, primary care, uh, we found a champion there, kind of involved our hospitalist, our ED medical director, and then our transitional care nurses Uh, So obviously, like any other hospital, you you know, you got to have nurses, you got to have doctors. And uh, we just kind of put them together and said, here's what we're trying to do. What do you all think? How how can we do this? And uh, they started brainstorming and we had uh, a group of transitional care nurses, luckily for us, that uh, were I wouldn't say they were necessarily tired of just kind of the phone calls they were already making, but they were really wanting more in their roles. They had been used to going out to the home and seeing patients. Uh, and so this, this concept actually really spoke to them and they have been, uh, they have really been the champions of it and have gotten just fantastic at taking care of people over a phone call, uh, and knowing when to elevate their care, when to, uh, when to talk to the doctor, uh, and, and things like that. So, um, just really been incredible with that. Um, you know, as, as we mentioned before, essentially what happens is as people are diagnosed with covid whether that's in our emergency departments, uh, whether they've been discharged from our facility after being uh, in the hospital with a COVID diagnosis, uh, or whether they show up to one of our urgent cares or primary care, they get uh, they get enrolled. Um, our nurses uh, reach out and talk to them based on uh, some guidelines and uh, based on their acuity, it, it dictates how many times uh, they'll be touched in in 24-hour, 72-hour periods and uh, uh, usually the nurses pretty much uh, will, will call folks every day and then about every third day uh, a physician will actually do a, uh, a virtual visit with them. And then the other interesting thing with uh, with what we've done uh, in, as in traditional medicine, you, you love having the complete set of vital signs, but what we figured out early on was uh, just a pulse ox was enough uh, with the heart rate and the saturation uh, to, to really do a great job of assessing these folks and the nurses, uh, you know, were able to get folks to get up and walk across the room and and report those numbers to them, so that uh, they were able to, you know, elevate care or, you know, just kind of know what they what they were like yesterday and what they look like today. And uh, so, just really a uh, an amazing uh, an amazing opportunity and and the work that they did to to kind of put this together is really incredible to watch.
3: And you know, from the hospital executive perspective, when they talked to me about it. I'm like, okay, well, what what do we got to have to do this? And the answer was a telephone and a pulse box. Wow! I'm like, wow, we're cutting
0: edge technology
3: yeah. medicine <laughs> here with yeah. a telephone and a pulse box,
1: but it right. worked. Wow. Phenomenal. Well,
0: I have to say when JJ first told me that he heard your story and that y'all set up a virtual hospital, I had no idea what he was talking about. I was like, what is a virtual hospital? <laughs> um, and you've shared that with us, but I'm curious... How many of your patients kind of had the same, wait, what are you talking about? And how did the patients respond to this new way of being taken care of? Were, were they fearful? Were they excited? What, what was the response?
3: Well, I will tell you that the, a lot of the community leaders that ended up with COVID were in our virtual hospital and had just sung its praises. Um, one of our county commissioners has said we saved his his life and his wife's life. Um, but I'll let Anthony talk a little bit more about some of the the numbers of patients we've taken care of and how they responded to that care. Yeah.
2: So uh, just just interestingly, uh, it got the the numbers through September. Um, and as I told you, the initial date was the twenty second of April of uh, twenty twenty. So as of September thirty, uh, we've enrolled 5,950 patients in the, in the virtual hospital. Uh, of the 5,950 uh, folks that needed escalations to either the emergency department or inpatient care, has been 280. Uh, so only 4.7% of those folks that we took care of virtually have needed uh, to have increased care. And then you say, well, you know, how 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 well did you do? I mean, was anybody dying while y'all were trying to to do this? And Of that 59.50, we've only had a total of seven deaths. So 0.12%. Five of those were escalated to the uh, hospital and then later died. Uh, And we had two die at home. One of those was uh, converted to hospice. Uh, So again, you know, cared for where they were. And then, uh, you know, unfortunately, early, uh, I believe it may have been the first weekend that we were doing this, we had a patient that we uh, had some challenges getting up with that... uh, had unfortunately uh, expired at home, uh, so our home mortality rate is 0.03% as we've been doing this. And then, and just one more statistic here: uh, readmissions of uh, all COVID patients that we've taken care of in our community has been 14.1%, and readmissions of COVID virtual hospital patients has been 1.9%. So, as, as mm-hmm. we're focusing wow. on all of us on uh, readmissions and you know potential penalties from that. Uh, looks like really good data. So obviously I know y'all see just the ability that is, you know, if we can do a good job with this with COVID, uh, how can we expand it? How can we uh, continue to use this tool as we uh, move forward with a lot of other chronic disease?
1: You know, and Kathy, you had, uh, when you look at these numbers, you must just be overwhelmed thinking about what you avoided with potential hospitalization and the potential onslaught of patients that would have been occupying rooms you know we we have un, sadly we have uh, patients currently uh, this week that are you know boarded in our hallway Uh, in the emergency departments waiting for patient rooms because uh, in the tri-state area here in Hillsdale County, uh, which is surrounded by Indiana and Ohio, we're all under diversion. And so I can't even imagine as you're looking at 5,900, you know, lives that you impacted by allowing for this virtual hospital, what that would have translated into had you not done this, it probably scares you.
3: It it really does. I mean, we got up to 50 plus inpatients at the same time we're running the virtual hospital. Um, We actually the primary care physician and some of our um, staff are doing a national research study and they're looking at our cost avoidance. So um, I'm very anxious to hear what those actual numbers are, because the cost of taking care of a patient at home, again, with a telephone and a pulse ox is a significant difference from being admitted to the hospital.
1: That's fantastic. And uh, the opportunities for, you know, the the lack of penalties for uh, readmission, you know, obviously you can keep those patients home and healthy. It's very, very important. So, you know, let's talk about the benefits here uh, because there are many. Uh, What are the most important benefits in your minds of the virtual hospital model in this situation versus that traditional care model that we're also used to? And, And Kathy, can we start with you on that?
3: yeah the the benefits really are a lot of the things that we've talked about the patients are not brought into the hospital they're not exposed to all of the things that you know lie within the walls of a hospital they're able to stay home that frees up beds again for the sicker patients for us um it allows us to touch a lot more patients i mean if we would have had to go on diversion if we had not had the the virtual hospital um you know we we as a rule, do not go on diversion, but when you're talking about a, a total of 5,900 patients, we would not have had a place to put everybody, even spread out over a year and a half. Yeah, absolutely. So the benefits are that it freed up resources and healthcare for those that truly had to be within the walls of the hospital and allowed us to, you know, very positively impact the care of those at home.
2: Yeah. Just kind of adding in on that, uh, JJ, the, uh, you know the the improved uh, patient safety, as Ms. Bailey mentioned, just you know the fact that they were at home and um, you know potentially not subjected to, to any kind of medical error while they were in the facility. Uh, obviously, the quality, the patient experience, as we mentioned earlier, just uh, the satisfaction level of of you know folks um, you know being at home. And if you think about it, you know what we've done previously, where you know we kind of hand you a stack of papers and tell you good luck when you when we let you go. And, this particular situation, we, we actually hand you that stack, stack of papers and we tell you a nurse is going to call you tomorrow and see how you're doing. Oh, yeah. And then they're going to call you the next day and the doctor is going to talk to you the day after that. And so you can imagine, you know, the, the way that uh, I mean, you know, some of the stories that we've told our board of directors about, uh, you know, feedback from, you know, from family members about how how well they felt like they were cared for, even though it was just a telephone um, you know, obviously, as you mentioned, and Miss Bailey mentioned, we're still waiting for those numbers. Uh, you know, cost avoidance for the hospital system, uh, and then uh, you know, just the opportunity down the road to replicate this uh, with some some other chronic disease states. Uh, one other uh, thing that was really kind of interesting early on that uh, we got a little bit of data that in the first 700 patients that we took care of, uh, 255 of those patients actually didn't have primary care physicians. And we and, and we have a robust primary care network, uh, so we were able to uh, add those patients to our uh, practice roles and our primary care doctors to, to enroll them in the virtual hospital. Uh, so, uh, 255 new patients that we now have in our uh, medical group that we're caring for, and then obviously, if you you know kind of expand that out uh, with the with the positive impression and the you know the way that they were feeling like they were cared for. Uh, Just as business opportunities down the road uh, from that virtual hospital contact, you know, we're hoping we would, you know, potentially get their GI procedures and their orthopedic procedures and stop out migration to other hospital systems. So um, just, you know, a huge opportunity there to, you know, to take care of our community.
1: Well, I'm going to make a prediction. I'm going to predict with all this goodwill and, uh, as your commissioner had stated, saving lives. I bet you're going to see some significant positive increases in your HCAP scores of happy patients. <laughs> I'm going to make that prediction uh, because that's going to translate uh, over into uh, in, into the satisfaction of, of your patient population. But, Kathy, I do have to go off script and ask you a question. So fellow CEOs across America are listening to this podcast, and they're going to ask the question, and you know it's coming. How do you pay for something like this? How do you get reimbursed for, we're all a bunch of greedy administrators, right? So that's going to be the first question. How how do you afford something of this magnitude? Can you share a little bit about that?
3: Yeah, we, um, when we went into it, we went into it knowing it was going to cost us money up front, but it was the right thing to do. We already had our transition care nursing team. So that was not additional cost. Um, Now, at some point, we're going to have to add some more. But we we do not run it through the hospital. We run it through our medical group. Oh, very good. And so when we run it through our medical group, the provider can actually bill for the virtual visit. Oh, good. So that that has helped. Um, this the virtual hospital is not even breaking even, but. Sure. Again, as I said, it's the, it's the right thing to do. And, you know, it makes up for it on the back end with
2: cost avoidance.
1: Absolutely.
2: JJ, one other thing, too, our uh, transitional care nurses, as they're uh, making those phone calls, um, they do put in the uh, needed documentation for the primary care physician. So uh, on the primary care physician side, they can pick up the transitional code as well uh, for a little bit of extra money there as well.
1: Excellent. Thank you for that response. I know our, our listeners are going to have that burning question.
2: Well, and as you
0: can imagine, my wheels are really turning now. And I'm sure JJ's have been since he heard your story a few weeks ago. But I'm thinking, okay, what can we do to replicate this model or maybe something similar? So for those who want to adopt your virtual hospital model, what advice or direction do you have for them?
3: I think you've got to have a primary care provider champion. Um, We had one that stepped up and said, absolutely, we can do this. She is the medical director of our virtual hospital um, and has kind of developed the protocols, uh, the risk stratification, um, what the transitional care nurses need to do. So that's key. And then Dr. Frank working with her and helped work with our hospitalists and our emergency medicine physicians so that the whole medical team came together in support of this. And then the equipment, as I said earlier, is a telephone and a bolt ox.
2: yeah, and, and what I would say is you know we're we're happy to talk about it again. We I mean, you know whatever was it luck or skill, um, I'd certainly rather be lucky. but uh, anyway, it just it really worked it really worked out well. Um, you know, so if there's anybody that's interested, we're happy to help uh, in any way we can. Uh, and then, you know, the other piece is, you know, you don't have to use our model. And I think there are, you know, some folks that have done some similar things, you, you got to take what you have. And, you know, I, I think JJ, as we were, we were talking um, on our, on our other call, the, uh, as you start talking about something like this, I think folks that are in your organization start to think, well, you know, I know exactly who that person is, or I know who this, this person is, and, and you have those folks in your organization, you just need to, you know, kind of engage them. And as Miss Bailey said, um, you know, just absolutely incredible. We had our, uh, our medical director of the virtual hospital, uh, who is, is now very well plugged in with our uh, hospitalist director and then our ED medical director. And it's, it's just amazing. You, you would never believe what happens when you actually have doctors talking to doctors, uh, and trying <laughs> to help each other out. So it's, uh, it's been incredible. And then, like I mentioned, the, the transitional care nurse team, they, they've been the, they've been the heroes. They, they, Uh, they own this and, uh, and, and just absolutely, uh, you know, love what they do right now, taking care of that. And then the final thing I mentioned was, you know, as we stood it up in two weeks, we didn't have all the answers. And so you just, you gotta be willing to, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of, kind of get it rolling, see what happens, you know, adjust on the fly and, and just make it yours. And, and uh, just realize that, you know, you may go down the wrong path in some particular direction. And we and we did a couple of times, but uh, we've been able to, you know, re- redirect. And uh, it just, you know, continues to be a success day after day.
1: Well, it's a remarkable story of hope and of healing. And I say of hope because uh, imagine those patients who would have been boarded in your emergency department, Uh, not properly taken care of, uh, unfortunately, the burden that would cast on your staff, uh, and, and for your community, the visionary idea that you had, uh, it's remarkable, and and I want to commend both of you, uh, and and hopefully as our viewers are listening to this, uh, this is going to give them pause to think about opportunities like this in their own communities. Uh, here, even in Hillsdale, we have been talking about it since our phone call, about what can we do uh, beyond just the, the telemetry monitoring that we do occasionally. What can we do with our home care nurses and our care coordinators to bring together a model much like this? So, uh, once again, um, President Bailey and Dr. Frank, uh, we want to thank Thank you for joining our program. It's of great value to have you here and to share this story uh, with America. And, and again, thank you so much for the time, the commitment, and for the visionary uh, ideas that you have put out and that you've captured. Uh, we, we just thank you from the medical field for what you have done. Thank you. Thank you. All right, before we close, we like to do a fun segment with each of our guests. So we want to know, what is your most unique rural experience or one of your most favorite memories that is unique to rural life? And Kathy, we're going to, we're going to start with you again. First, uh, do you have any experiences as you have been in, in places that are rural uh, that you could share with our listeners today?
3: Yeah. The one that always comes to mind is back in the nineties when joint commission really tightened up all of the rules around restraining patients. And we don't do that. And, We were educating as we prepared for our Joint Commission survey, we were educating our board members and our board leadership on why we were changing, how we took care of patients and how we would no longer put patients in restraints and how we monitor them if we needed to. Um, We weren't sure if the education was sinking in and then the Joint Commission surveyor got there and in the leadership conference, he turned to one of the board members and said that he had been in another hospital recently And a bear wandered in the sliding glass doors at the lobby. And he looked at this board person. He said, tell me how you would have handled that. And without missing a beat, the board uh, member replied, well, I'm not really sure, but I can tell you, we would not have restrained him. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. awesome. That
1: is awesome. All right, Dr. Frank, what about you? What is your most unique rule experience?
2: Uh, So two that kind of... uh... To piggyback on each other the first one is uh, we have a rural gme program in internal medicine and uh one of the things you would think is well you know gosh as a resident why why would i want to go to this uh you know smaller health system uh in a uh, rural community um you know i'm never going to see the things that i need to see to to get trained but it's amazing you know kind of year after year as our residents do research and present some of these cases that just because you're at the smaller place doesn't mean that the most complex uh medical case that you've ever taken care of isn't going to walk through the door and that I mean that's true with the hospital the emergency department uh, or anywhere and then I just kind of moving on like I told you at the beginning I've I've practiced at uh, you know large tertiary care centers down to critical access hospitals and, and just one of my favorite stories there is uh uh I remember one of my uh, my partners uh at uh, at a smaller ED just uh, on the phone with one of the transfer centers and uh and they said, "Well, uh, I don't. I. What did your cardiothoracic surgeon say about that particular case?" And she said, <laughs> "You must have missed where I told you that I was calling from. I'm calling from uh, Hospital X, and uh, we don't have cardiothoracic surgeons. So just a reminder that uh, you know, as as we're all practicing medicine and we've all you know practiced in uh, or trained in, in bigger places, most of us as physicians that." Uh, uh, just because you train there doesn't mean that every hospital uh, out there uh, has those services. And I, and I know you guys know just by the same rural nature that uh, it's always interesting, uh, you know, what, what people suppose that you have as resources.
1: Absolutely. Well, thanks again for joining us today, Kathy and Dr. Frank. Next time on Rural Health Rising, we'll have another great conversation with a great guest. So be sure to tune in.
0: And with that, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and tell others why they should listen, too. Your feedback helps more listeners find Rural Health Rising.
1: You can also find us now on Twitter. I'm at Hillsdale CEO JJ. Rachel is at Rural Health Rach. And you can also follow the podcast at Rural Health Pod. Until next time, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay strong.
0: Rural Health Rising is a production of Hillsdale Hospital in Hillsdale, Michigan, hosted by JJ Hodshire and Rachel Lott. Audio engineering and original music by Kenji Ulmer. Special thanks to today's guests, Kathy Bailey, president and CEO, and Dr. Anthony Frank, CMO and SVP of Medical Affairs for UNC Health Blue Ridge. For more interviews like this and for more information, visit ruralhealthrising.com.